You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Margaret Atwood. This program originally aired in 2013. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here again amongst ladies and gentlemen, Twitter followers, and uh, my secret distant relatives. (laughs) So I think there are probably some in the audience. I thought I would begin by saying very briefly that this is the third of of three. In the first one, Oryx and Crake, we followed a a disadvantaged young man uh, who was not very good at math in a land of people who were good at math, an enclave of biotechnicians in the not-too-distant future living in a gated community where they will all live soon. And uh, his name was Jimmy, and uh, he finds himself in Oryx and Crake uh, being the shepherd of a group of genetically enhanced, improved human beings, with most of the old style having been eliminated um, (laughs) rather suddenly. And there are some other uh, genetically enhanced creatures roaming about as well, including some glowing green rabbits, those are with us on the planet today, and some new-style pigs who were called pigoons after pig balloons who were developed to grow multiple human kidneys for transplant. When I wrote that book, they were just working on that, but now they can do it. And uh, they have promised never, never, never to grow, for instance, human brain tissue in those pigs, but in the future they've done it. So these pigs are very smart. Pigs are smart anyway, but these pigs are very smart. And these pigs are in that world, too. In the second book, we follow a group of green religious uh, cult figures. They belong to a group called the God's Gardeners, which is raising vegetables and bees on flat rooftops in slums. And... um, We follow the fortunes of two of the members of that group, Wren and Toby, who survived the pandemic plague. Wren, by hiding out or being locked up in an upscale nightclub called Scales and Tails. And Toby, by uh, locking herself up in a spa, which I think would be a really good place to wait out a plague because it does have lots of towels pink, cheery towels, and soap. You would feel in need of some soap at a time like that. And so they have survived it, and they meet up. And at the end of that book, the two books come together. Mad Adam takes off from that point and goes on into the future and also tells us about a third group the mad Adamites who have been conducting bioresistance against the large corporations that control everything, not in our day, but in this imagined future. And um, God's gardeners never, ever use the Internet or cell phones because they already knew something that we have just discovered, uh, which is that, guess what? People have been looking at you through your tech Who knew that? The God's gardeners knew it. And um, those people would include um, not only corporations, but governments. Naughty them. (laughs) 
so mad at him. It's a palindrome. Um, Mary, Queen of Scots, said, in my end is my beginning. Palindromes are like that. It's hopeful to be a palindrome. I thought I would uh, tell you the story of the cover of the book. The cover of the book went like this. I don't know whether you saw something on the internet called Cover Flip. It was a, a female author who was getting a bit ticked off by the girlification of um, covers of female authors. And she challenged readers to take well-known books and change the gender and put an appropriate cover on, the cover that they thought the publisher would put on if, for instance, William Faulkner were Wilhelmina Faulkner or uh, J.D. Salinger were Janice Salinger or Jack Kerouac were Jacqueline Kerouac. So the two covers are shown side by side on the road by Jack Kerouac being fairly austere and kind of black and white and rectilinear and on the road by Jacqueline Kerouac being <laughs> a uh, red roadster with a waving blonde in it. Um, it, used to be <laughs> it used to be that if you were a female author, they tried to make your covers look severe. In fact, when I first started writing, I used initials so nobody would know the shameful truth. Uh, but, but then publishers discovered chick lit and realized that they should maybe floralize things up a bit. So the first cover design that was presented to me for Mad Adam had flowers on it. Uh, not only flowers, they were very dainty, white, fragile, panty-liner-looking flowers. <laughs> For feminine freshness. And um, I said, I think this is misleading. This book is about cannibalism and evisceration and uh, the eradication of the human race. And, and if people buy it with these flowers on it, you know, with these white, dainty flowers, they will be sadly disappointed because it is not Diary of an English Country Gentlewoman. I mean, there are a couple of flowers in it, but not many. <laughs> so let's try again. So the next one I got, the cover was black. They got that part. <laughs> it was dark. I said, I, I had said, put an egg on it. Uh, and they had put an egg on it, and they put an egg, because uh, there's a significant egg in this book. And they'd put an egg, and they'd put it in a nest, and then they'd put some dead flowers. They got the... <laughs> They got the dead part. Uh, and then they had made the writing out of twigs, twiggy writing. And I said, okay, so any, any woman looking at this is going to think, where's the broom? And any man looking at it is going to think, gnomes. You know, this is twiggy writing, that means gnomes. There are no gnomes in this book. Let's try again. <laughs> So we did work our way around to uh, the cover that you have before you today. You can see there's still an egg. And now I'm going to tell you about eggs. I did a Reddit yesterday, and one of the questions went like this. 
I did a search on all of your books, and I found all of these references to football. And every one of the references to football is violent. Does that mean that you think football is violent? <laughs> so, so like what? Kicked around like a football, something like that. I said, well, I've never been asked that before. I have been asked, why are there so many bathtubs in your work? Why are there so many glass jars? Why are there so many eggs? Why are there so many references to the color mauve? And why are there so many references to the color maroon? I do know the answer to some of those. I don't know about the glass jars, except that I used to do a lot of pickling. Uh, <laughs> um, but the eggs, the mauve, and the maroon, I will tell you about. The maroon is easy. Right after the war, long before you were born, there wasn't very much stuff. But there was the Eaton's catalog. And in the Eaton's catalog, there were the winter coats for girls. And those winter coats for girls came in only two colors, navy blue and maroon. That's why there's so much maroon. I bonded with it as a child. The mauve has to do with the eggs. I was very fond of drawing Easter eggs as a child, and when you draw Easter eggs, you color them the following colors. Pink, light blue, light yellow, and mauve. That's the answer. <laughs> and it's the same as the answer for the eggs. <laughs> I imprinted on eggs. So there you have the answer to all those questions except the football one and uh, the bathtub one, and the bathtub one is also quite simple. I was horrified as a child by reading Walter Scott, most particularly Ivanhoe. And in Ivanhoe, a character called Rowena is shut up in a tower in a castle, and it doesn't say anything about a bathtub. In fact, it doesn't even say anything about a bathroom, which... Uh, worried me quite a lot. You may notice that <laughs> there are novels in which characters do have baths and use bathrooms, and there are other novels in which they never do those things, just as there are novels in which the characters eat, and I'm in favor of that, and other novels in which the characters do not eat at all, although they may smoke and drink, as in Dashiell Hammett. And there are <laughs> some novels in which the characters have a childhood life and other novels in which they have no childhood life. Sherlock Holmes has no mother and father. Have you ever noticed that? He has a brother, but no mom and dad. We hear nothing about the infancy of young Sherlock. I can see you're all thinking very hard about that. <laughs> I, however... Um, do provide my characters with things to eat and with childhoods. You're listening to a special edition of Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Virginia Prescott with Writers on a New England Stage. Today, Margaret Atwood discusses her novel, Mad Adam. This program was recorded in front of a live audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. I'm going to read a bit of this book to you about 
a character called Zeb, who was a large, uh, hairy person who is male. In this episode, he is uh, trying to walk out of a place called the Mackenzie Mountain Barrens, which is in the big part of Canada. Canada is quite big. The, the further north and west you go, the bigger it gets. <laughs> and the fewer people are in it. So there are no people in the Mackenzie Mountain Barrens, which is up so high that it has a tundra uh, landscape with no very few trees. But it has bears. So he's walking out of it. His airborne vehicle has, has crashed. At the next washed-out bridge, a bear congealed from the low shrubs flanking the river. It was not there, and then it was there, and it reared up, startled, offering itself. Was there growling, a roar, a stench? No doubt, but Zeb can't remember. He must have sprayed its eyes with the bear spray and shot it point-blank, but there's no photo record. Next thing he knew, he was butchering it, hacking away at it with his inadequate knife, blood up to the wrists, then bonanza, the meat, the fur. Not too much, he told himself, chewing, recalling the dangers of stuffing yourself on an empty stomach, especially on something so rich and super-saturated. Little at a time, his voice came to him muffled, as if he was telephoning himself from underground. What did this taste like? Who cared? Having eaten the heart, could he now speak the language of bears? Picture him the next day or the next or sometime, halfway there, wherever there is, though he retains the belief that it is, in fact, somewhere. He's got new footgear, Wraps of hide, fur side in, tied with crisscross strips, like a fashion item in a caveman comic. He's got a fur cape, he's got a fur hat, and all of it doubles as sleeping gear, heavy and stinky. And now, coming towards him along the relatively smooth stretch of road ahead, far in the distance, there's a cyclist some rugged mountain bike adventurer out of his mind on endorphins. They pass through Whitehorse from time to time, augment their kits at the outfitter stores, head for the hills to test their endurance metal on the old kennel trail. They pedal as far as the bunkie, that's their usual trajectory. Then they pedal back, thinner, stringier, madder. Some bring tales of alien abductions, some of talking foxes, some of human voices on the tundra at night, or semi-human voices trying to lure them. No, two cyclists, one quite a bit ahead. Lovers tiff, he speculates. The normal thing would be to stick together. Useful things, mountain bikes also pannier packs and whatever might be in them. Zeb hides in the creekside shrubbery, waits for the first one to go past. A woman, blonde, sporting the thighs of a stainless steel nutcracker goddess in her shiny, skin-tight cycle wear. Under her streamlined helmet, she's squinting into the wind, 
frowning fit to kill with her skimpy eyebrows over her trendy little wind-sun goggles. Away she goes, bumpity-bump, ass taut as an implanted And now, here comes the guy, keeping his distance, morose, mouth down at the corners. He's her off. He's feeling the whip. He's burdened with a misery Zeb can alleviate. Zeb yells, or words to that effect. Short form, he leaps out of the bushes and onto the guy, making a growly noise in his bare fur coverings. There's a strangled yelp from the target, then a metallic toppling. No need to bash the poor sucker, he's out cold anyway. Just take the cycle with its twin saddle packs and make off. When he looks behind, the girl has stopped. He can picture her recently clamped mouth and open O, the O of woe. Now she'll be sorry she tongue-lashed the sad bugger. She'll thunder thigh back, kneel and minister, rock and cradle, dab at scrapes, shed tears. The lad will come to and gaze into her ungoggled eyes, the simp, and all will be forgiven, whatever it was. Then they will use her cell phone to call for aid. What will they say? He can imagine. When he's out of sight, down a hill and around a corner, he goes through the saddlebags. What a trove. A poker hand of jolt bars, some sort of quasi-cheese product, an extra wind cheater, a mini stove with fuel cylinder, a pair of dry socks, spare boots with thick soles, too small, but he'll cut out the toes. A cell phone. Best of all, an identity. He can use some of that. He mashes the cell phone and hides it under a rock, then makes his way sideways over the tundra, squish, squish, bike and all. Luckily, there's a pulsa that's been ripped open, no doubt by an enraged growlar in search of evasive ground squirrels. Zeb digs himself in the bike into the moist black earth, leaving a vantage point between clods. After a long, damp wait, here comes the thopter. It hovers over where the two young cyclists must be hugging and shivering and thanking their lucky stars. And down goes the ladder, and after a time, up go the lovers, and then they're carried away in the slow, low thopter, flippity-flop, blimpity-blimp. What a story they will have to tell. And they tell it. Sasquatches are real after all. And they've migrated to the Mackenzie Mountain Barrens. No, it couldn't have been a bear because bears can't ride mountain bikes. Anyway, this thing was seven feet tall with eyes almost like a man's and it smelled terrible and it showed signs of almost human intelligence. There's even a picture taken on the girl's cell phone a brown blob with a red circle around it to signal which of the many brown blobs in the picture is the significant one. Within a week, Bigfoot believers from around the world have formed a posse and mounted an expedition to the site of the discovery and are combing the area for footprints and tufts of hair and piles of dung. Soon, says their leader, They will have a batch of definitive DNA, and then these scoffers will be shown up 
for the corrupt, fossilized, obsolete truth deniers that they are very soon. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHPR and the Music Hall present writers on a New England stage recorded at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Today, the Booker Prize-winning author Margaret Atwood discusses the final installment of her Mad Adam trilogy. Atwood's 1985 book, The Handmaid's Tale, made her a literary star and earned her the first ever Arthur C. Clarke Award for Science Fiction. The book is set in the near future when a totalitarian Christian theocracy topples the government of the United States. Most of the women are sterile in this new Republic of Gilead. The very few who are fertile are captured, indoctrinated, and pressed into service as handmaids, basically being impregnated by powerful men. The novel has been adopted for radio, stage, and a 1990 Hollywood film. What'd you do? How'd they get you? He tried to cross the border. What about you? Gender treachery. I like girls. Christ, they could have sent you to the colonies. They don't send you to the colonies if your ovaries are still jumping. In 2003, Margaret Atwood released Oryx and Crake, which was followed by The Year of the Flood and now Mad Adam. The three novels make up the Mad Adam trilogy. The three novels are again set in the not-too-distant future on a planet that's been devastated by a pandemic and an America shrunken by rising sea levels. Many of the bioengineered creatures and human characters introduced in Oryx and Crake return in this disturbingly plausible scenario. Like much of Atwood's work, Mad Adam is a sardonically funny and satirical novel. It also reveals how this new world came to be and how the characters arrived at the final showdown for the future of humanity. When on stage earlier, Margaret Atwood talked about some of the genetically modified creations included in her imagined world that have since been engineered in the real world. The spliced animals, the lab-grown meat, and organs. I sat down with Margaret Atwood on stage at the Music Hall and asked if she found reality catching up with her speculative fiction to be creepy or maybe gratifying. Not really, because they all come from stories that are that are there already in some form. So with the kidneys and the pigs, I knew they were working on them. Even back when I was writing the first one, I knew they had some impediments. There were a few blocks, which now they've overcome. Uh, so you just follow those those stories along. How do you keep up with them? Well, there's these magazines called um, uh, New Scientist. You can get that online. You can get Discover, Scientific American, Nature. Um, National Geo sometimes has some of that. Uh, It's the biology stories that most interest me. Maybe you get this information from New Scientist, but what you bring to it... Uh, naming the meat that is created in a lab never bled shishka buddies, for example? Yeah, well, that, I mean, you, you have to... <laughs> or secret well, burgers? <laughs> yeah, that, that seems to be an accurate description of a lot of the burgers out there today, since you don't know what's in them. <laughs> They're secret burgers because everyone loves a secret. 
And uh, <laughs> yes, their logo is a smiley mouth with a zipper. Um, yeah, well, you have to make up names to the best of your ability that don't already exist for similar products or else you might, might find yourself in an unpleasant lawsuit. <laughs> well, I was wondering if you'd ever considered a second career as a branding consultant, actually. After coming up with Happy Cuppa, that's where you get energized with a happy cappuccino. And a happy frappuccino for those hot days. <laughs> uh, I used to work long, long ago in my, my youth. My youth. Remember that? My youth. When was that? that was, <laughs> I really can't answer that. I can tell you. It was in the early 60s. I had a job with a market research company. And that was very fascinating, as it turned out. In fact, it was our company that tested the Pop-Tart. Wow. We tested the Pop-Tart. Wow, this man. is before there were microwaves. <laughs> long, long ago. They put them in the toaster where they all exploded, <laughs> spraying, <laughs> spraying hot jam, and we had to replace all the toasters. And uh, the news going back to the Pop-Tart company was more glue. So they put in more glue, and I was the person who, and this is how much of a non-predictor I really am, I said, nobody's going to buy this. <laughs> The bio-beings are part of the fascinating thing in this book, these creatures that are created in a lab. And, and you say um, people are customizing their kids like choosing pizza toppings. Well, that's in the book. Yes, yeah. that's in the book. But right now we already have the glowing green rabbits and we already have the combination of goat and spider that makes uh, silk, silk for bulletproof vests. Yeah. That's, that's in Montreal. It's kind of piercingly funny the way that you talk about some of these things, but I wonder if you have any fear of it. I mean, we all drive past these gated science labs on the highway somewhere. They're doing something there. Do you have fear about that? I don't think fear exactly. Um, first of all, science is a tool. It's not scary in itself any more than any other human tool is. It's, it's we who decide what we do with our tools. So if there's anything scary about any of this, it's probably um, human motivations. And some of our motivations are good, and some of our motivations are bad, and some of our motivations intend to be good, and then they have stupid side effects. And Donald Rumsfeld was not wrong when he said, it's the unknown unknowns that get you. And that was actually right. <laughs> it is the unknown unknown. So... Any new thing that you, that you make and release into the environment is like taking a species from one environment and putting it into another. It is a biological entity, just, just like everything else that's alive on the planet. Any bio-beings or creatures that you'd like to see come to fruition? Oh, I would just love to have a raccoon. Can you explain what a raccoon is? Getting a young raccoon and thinking it's going to grow up and be your friend is actually usually pretty wrong. In fact, it's it's always wrong. Uh, They are cute as small animals, babies, but when they get to be grown-up raccoons, they can be quite dangerous and destructive. Uh, But skunks, because they've never had to be very aggressive due to the one defense weapon that they have, are very gentle and kind creatures. So I think it would be quite nice to have a blend of a raccoon and, and skunk, sort of a bit livelier than a skunk, but 
but not smelly. Don't you think that would be nice? The fur is nice on a skunk as I think well. the, sk- the fur on a skunk is very nice and fuzzy. How well-formed <laughs> was this the third in the trilogy when you began the book? Did you have any inkling what would come out in the conclusion? You mean when I started Oryx exactly, and Exactly, when Craig. you started Oryx and Craig. When I started trilogy. Oryx and Craig, I wasn't intending to do three. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really wildly well-organized, unlike some people. But Shortly after I finished it, um, I realized there were a lot of unanswered questions, and then I would probably want to go back in and explore those two groups that I hadn't followed. So um, when I finished one, I knew not only that I would do two, but that I would do two and three. You just talked a little bit about the story of Zeb, one segment of his story. And this book is very much about the telling of stories and the way that stories are told. There's a character, Toby, who is telling the story of Zeb and also Crake, their maker, to this group called the Crakers. So I'll ask yes, you about. She's hearing it, but she's also she's retelling also it. it. And she's wearing a Red Sox cap, and she is pretending that she's actually hearing the story or channeling it through the broken watch of Crake. And I, I just thought, in this room anyway, people would like to know what the connection of the Red Sox cap is to myth. Well, um, why is it a Red Sox cap? Okay, so where is the whole opus situated? We know that the sun rises in the east over the ocean. So we know it's on the east coast. We know it's in a place that is flat enough so that the rising ocean has made some buildings uninhabitable and that they're now offshore. So you can't go too far up the coast to where it's rocky and precipitous because you would not get that effect. What could be more convenient (laughs) for such a a world to be situated? What could be more convenient than the area around Boston, Mm -hmm. which already has a place called Back Bay, which was, in fact, filled in, was it not? Mm -hmm. So I just think that the area around Boston would be very convenient for such a thing. And don't you agree? (laughs) And what, therefore, baseball cat would you be likely to find (laughs) than what would be more likely than a Red Sox cap? It's not the only relic that remains. It's not the only relic. Anyway, once it has been uh, used in that way, of course, it becomes... Mm -hmm a semi-sacred vestment, and it develops an aura in this future of which we speak. It it also has the aura of being quite ancient. Mm. So it has that sort of ancient, mysterious thing about it. Well, I'm thinking about some of the other relics that are left behind after the plague. Um, Mickey Mouse wading pools, for example. It's kind of this wasteland of the mundane. You know, I, I was just in London... I throw that out. Uh, (laughs) uh, They tried flowers in the UK, too, and they didn't get away with it there either. Um, But I went to, on my one day off, I throw that out, um, I went to the Pompeii and Herculaneum exhibit, which is currently at the British Museum. And these were two Roman cities that were buried when Vesuvius went off. And it is indeed an archaeology of the mundane because everything was buried. Uh, And instantly, it it took 24 hours, gone, two cities, just gone. 
And they found everything, as they've been excavating, they found everything from the most exquisite works of art to, and I quote, the largest collection of Roman that has ever ever been discovered. (laughs) I quote, I quote, uh, they had an advanced sewage system, not as advanced as ours, but it was advanced, and they put all kinds of things down there. People were, of course, riveted by some of the things that they were uh, seeing at this exhibit. There were some guys in there earnestly discussing the, the plumbing system, which was, they had faucets, you know, they had water pipes, they had uh, running water, they had fountains. So yes, all of those things would be left, and people would scratch their heads to a certain extent over what these things were, which they do with a lot of the things that we dig up from ancient civilizations. You're listening to a special edition of Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. Today, Margaret Atwood discusses her novel, Mad Adam. This program was recorded in front of a live audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Last time you were here, you spoke about the ritual of telling story, that it was a way that human beings survived, that they warned each other about dangers. This book strikes me as a lot about the content of those stories. The story that Toby is telling, for example, she's kind of creating a mythology. Yeah, because once you have language with a past tense and especially a pluperfect, people are going to say, where did we come from? And where did we come from before that? And they're going to want to go back as far as they can, till you get to a story that begins in the beginning. It also seems to me like there's the role of story here in creating a new world, what that means, how that is done, and is that a reflection on how you imagine it happening in our own civilization or various different civilizations? Well, it's not created from nothing. (laughs) You don't get a blank slate. Mm. So... I, I think that these the stories that the character is telling are in, are in response to demand, as in fact a lot of stories are. If you've ever been around young kids a lot, you will know this pattern. You know, the, the wish for a story and then a wish for the same story until they're absolutely sure of the details. And when they've got that one down, then another story. And they're going to want to hear that one until they've got all of that nailed down. Toby is kind of reluctant initially to be telling these stories. but She then doesn't she, know what to say. She doesn't know what to say. And it, this reminds me of a question from the audience. Do you know exactly what is going to happen in your books before you put pen to paper? Or do you find the story as you write? Because Toby seems to find it as she speaks. As indeed we do in our own lives. We're, we are the storytellers of our own lives, and we are improvising. Uh, So, yes, no, I don't know. Um, There is one kind of story that you have to write backwards, that is, you have to know the ending. And those are mystery stories of the classic kind, in which there is a puzzle and a solution. So you have to know who done it. Uh, So you can sprinkle the clues and red herrings around. But any other kind of story, I, at any rate, want to be surprised as I'm writing it. 
tell us a little bit about the people or the creatures that she's telling the stories to the Krakers. Okay, so the Krakers were devised by their um, fabricator, Krake, as an improvement upon Homo sapiens sapiens, which is our own species. And they're intended to avoid all of the problems that we get ourselves into because of who we are. So they have a lot of improvements. Some of them would be good. They've got built-in sunblock. I like that. Built-in insect repellent, even better. They don't need clothes, so they will never have to have a fashion industry or grow any cotton or have sheep and take off the wool and make it into clothing or any of that. They just don't need it. They are able to purr in order to self-heal. I got a bit of pushback about that purring, but I stand by it. The uh, frequency of cats purring is very close to the ultrasound that we used on bone fractures. And uh, people have been trying to decipher cats purring for years, but you know, of course, if you have had cats, you know that when you're ill, they will get up on you and purr over you in an attempt to be helpful. You know that. Cats are very altruistic. (laughs) They just have facial expressions that are hard to read. (laughs) Okay, so these people also have a very odd way of singing. Their inventor tried to eliminate music and symbolic thinking from them, but he did not succeed. Uh, So they are busily singing away, and they're also busily doing a lot of symbolic thinking, too. And best of all, they will never suffer from romantic agony. They don't get jealous. They will never uh, suffer from jealousy. They will never be told that, no, I will not go out with you because I'm washing my hair, and I will always be washing my hair as far as you are concerned. Uh, because they mate seasonally, unlike ourselves. So it's either mating season for them or it isn't. And at those times, just so we're all very clear about it, parts of them turn blue. So there is no confusion. They do a courtship uh, ritual like penguins. Penguins use stones. If the lady penguin accepts the stone, then it's a go. Uh, And they, oddly enough, present bouquets of flowers. Has that ever happened to you? (laughs) No chocolates, just the flowers. Uh, The flowers and the singing. So that there's no paternalism or patriarchy. Anyway, they don't have anything to inherit. Uh, And since they're completely vegetarian, and not only that, they eat leaves and grass... They will never have to have agriculture or clear any land or defend any of that at all because they're not aggressive. They mate in groups, and babies, therefore, are everybody's baby. Toby, however, who is telling them stories, she does experience jealousy and really struggles with it in her trying to cling to her religion with an almost monastic restraint, even though she's jealous. Yes, the religion says you shouldn't have these feelings. Right. There's a much younger model of a woman who is threatening her relationship with Zeb, at least in her mind. There's a lot of fighting over chores. And in fact, doesn't she observe at some point that the future sort of looks a little bit like high school? (laughs) From a certain point of view, all of life looks a little bit like high school. (laughs) 
Somebody said to me recently, why are young people so smitten with all of these dark dystopias? And I said, because they're in high school. <laughs> you're, you're very much a front runner of the dystopian novel, and it is huge among young adults. And I wonder how you look at all of these dystopian novels that are coming out. Well, it's always interesting when you do something early on and people think you're a bit weird. <laughs> and then all of a sudden other people are doing it and they, then they think maybe you had a pretty good idea. Does your home life suffer when you are writing a dystopian novel? Does my home life suffer when I'm writing a novel? <laughs> I think that's, <laughs> that's the short question. I think my home life has actually improved when I'm writing a novel. First of all, I'm out of everybody's hair, uh, and I don't sort of bustle around making them do chores and uh, fixing up the house and redecorating and in fact, my daughter said when I said, I'm going to paint the house, she said, oh, I guess you're between novels. <laughs> Isn't it true? But it doesn't matter whether it's a, a dystopia or something else. It's really just the question of whether you're writing or not. And I, I think that writers who aren't writing get grumpy. They get grumpy and their energy gets directed towards inappropriate things. Well, a lot of people are also asking about how you inject humor into that, but perhaps my favorite question from the audience yet, have you ever considered stand-up comedy? <laughs> no. It's, it's, uh, it's very hard. The life of a stand-up comic is really quite grueling. Would you consider yourself a sit-down comic? Because... No, I, I don't. I mean, I used to be considered really quite frightening. So... Um, it's when my hair was longer. <laughs> no, I, I don't inject humor into things. Mm. You don't have something without humor, and then you put humor into it. That's not how it works. Mm. I don't think that a little thing like the end of the human race would cause the survivors to lose their sense of humor mm. if they had one to begin with. Do you? <laughs> let's hope not. <laughs> or let's put it this way. True, if you're in the middle of a raging flood, you're not going to be making too many jokes. But if you then find that you've survived that and you're maybe stuck on a rooftop with a tin of beans and a few matches and some pals, uh, you're probably going to make a few gallows humor comments. Well, if you're from New England, you are. Maybe if you're, maybe if you're from some other more humorless place, <laughs> you're not. Some more yeah. earnest place. The God's gardeners are preparing for the end of the world. Um, As well they might. And a lot of the characters seem kind of gratified that there has been this great clear-cutting. We get to begin with a clean slate. I'm wondering if you love yourself a good apocalypse, Margaret Atwood. I don't that think idea. so. Um, yeah, I mean, the, you do hear some chat about that these days. You hear people actually talking like that. Mm. Uh, but this is a very old You mean theme. the preppers, the survivors who are... No, I mean real people in real life. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you go back to you know, ancient stories, why did Zeus make the Trojan War? Well, one of the things that is said is that Zeus made the Trojan War because there were too many people. And something very similar is said about the Noah episode except not only were the people too many, but they had become evil and corrupted. 
etc., etc. So you do hear people wondering about that, and I think part of their wondering is how large can the human race get before it's over the tipping point? In other words, what's the carrying capacity of the earth like that? Elmore Leonard said, don't go into great detail describing a place unless you are Margaret Atwood and can paint, <laughs> and can paint scenes with language. I wonder how, how that comes to you. Do you sit? Do you imagine? How far do you get? Do you imagine conversations because you get dialogue so well? well yeah, how, what is I that think, process for you? I think he was saying, he was making a distinction between, between dialogue and um, large paragraphs of description. He himself, of course, was an ace with, with dialogue. Very, very good dialogue. And he was also a screenwriter, mm-hmm. um, as well as being a novelist. In fact, I once interviewed him on stage, and I said, you've written all these, these um, film scripts. If you had started earlier, do you think you would have been a film script writer rather than a novelist? And he said, oh, no, Margaret... I would never have been just a film script writer because, you see, I wanted to be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> but he was very good with the dialogue. Uh, so how does it... How do you create them? Oh, There's you know, such detail. Well, some of them are, some of them are. It's, it's just uh, letting people know where you are uh, in physical time and space. And um, it's the same with the furniture. You know, if you walk into somebody's house... You want to tell people what kind of a house it is. Somebody who was very good at furniture was Raymond Chandler, whereas Dashiell Hammett was very good at men's suits. <laughs> and as we very good at men's smoking suits. cigarettes and drinking. Yeah, you yeah, always make sure that they've got a drink or two or three or four. For you, when you are imagining what a world looks like, do you have... One vision of the future? Do you have many, many visions of the future? Oh, the future. There is no the future. There are an infinite number of possible futures because there are too many variables for anybody to actually predict the future. And I'm sharing this with you. Don't tell the others. Nobody's actually been to the future yet. (laughs) 